Let's turn in our Bibles to Psalm 44. As we read through this psalm, you'll notice how it begins on a, on a plane of confidence that the psalmist has and then quickly turns, which makes it a perplexing psalm to understand and interpret. Because we see the confidence the psalmist has in the Lord and then how it quickly turns to where the psalmist believes he has been rejected by God because of the circumstances that he finds himself in. And if you remember Psalm 42, Psalm 43, the psalmist has been outcast from Jerusalem. And we see a progression moving from Psalm 42 to Psalm 49 where then the psalmist is restated, reinstated in Jerusalem where worship of God is to resume. And so we see here in Psalm 44 the remnant of Israel being represented by the single psalmist writing down the fears that they had been rejected by God. And so let us hear this word of God. Psalm 44, beginning in verse 1. O God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us, what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted, you afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face you delighted in them. You are my king, O God, ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually and we will give thanks to your name forever. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe. And those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughing stock among the peoples. All day long, my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face. At the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger, all this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you. We have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would you not discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust, our belly clings to the ground. Rise up, 
Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. This is the word of God. And may he bless the reading of it. The text divides up very easily. Verses 1 through 8, the psalmist is looking back to God's past deliverance. Verses 9 through 22, he is stating that they have been rejected by God. And then the final verses is a plea for God to rescue them. But you notice in these first three verses, there is a statement of what God has done in the past, God's power that has been demonstrated in the past, in the history of Israel. Oh God, we have heard, verse 1, with our ears, our fathers have told us. They have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old Verse 2, with your own hand drove out the nations, but you planted, you afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. This is saying that the fathers of the children of Israel had told of God's exodus and power in the exodus, and then ensuing their taking over the land and conquering of the land through Joshua. This is a statement We have been told what you did in Egypt. We have been told what you did in the land of Canaan. How you rescued a people. That you did these things, God. Then you see God's power and demonstration in grace in verse 3. For it was not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did by their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. That is that God chose a people to fight for a people and to redeem a people that he himself delighted in. And we know something about God delighting in his people. There's nothing in us that causes God to delight. It's God's act of choice to delight in a people. They're recognizing here that it is not by their merit that God saved them, but rather it was according to His desire and choice to show mercy. You see, the great mystery of the people of God is this. And what we see here is this great mystery is that we are to share what God has provided by His grace. And what's amazing about this, I want you to look at verse 1. Who is it that's responsible to share this? Who's responsible? Who holds the responsibility of sharing the good news of what God has done? Look at the text. What's written in verse 1? Oh God, we have heard with our ears our fathers have told us. This is the responsibility of the father to tell the children what God has done by his grace. This is the responsibility of the father to tell the children what deeds God performed in the days of old and what God has done. And just for a moment, turn over to Deuteronomy 6 with me. I want you to see how this responsibility plays itself out. In verse 4 of Deuteronomy 6, 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently. That is with effort to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. In other words, there's no point that is where you are free from telling the children what God has done and who God is. You, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. In other words, you are to share the news in verses 4 through 9 of Deuteronomy 6 of who God is and who He is in His nature and what is our responsibility to this God. That is to be taught diligently. And then we are told Aaron, you're to share what God has done on our behalf. Verse 10. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give you with great and good cities that you did not build and houses full of all good things that you did not fill and cisterns that you did not dig and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant and when you eat and you are full. In other words, these things that God has given you by his grace... Then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Notice now there is a statement, a command, that the fathers were to tell them of the exodus and of the conquering of the land. All that you have, this comes from God's benevolent hand. It goes on to say, it is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. In other words, we are to share what God has done on our behalf, but it doesn't end there. Look at verse 20. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, you were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. What is that speaking of? The Exodus. You're to share this with God, or with your children. And the Lord showed signs and wonders and great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from here that he might bring us in and give us this, the land that he swore to give our fathers. What is that a statement of? Conquering of the land. But there's something important about this. I want you to notice in verse 20. When your son asks you in time to come means this. There has been consistency in that message. That's the key. This is not just a one-time statement of 
the testimonies and the statutes and the rules and then also a one-time statement about what God has done and who God is. But this has done something so consistently that's so part of the child's life that there comes a point where they say, wait, why do we always do these things? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you why. We always do these things. I sometimes think of it like this. Mom, Dad, why do we go to church and sing these songs and we listen to this guy talk out of the Bible and why, why do we then take this bread and this cup and why do we do those things? Why, why do we dunk people underwater? I'm glad you asked. Because I want to tell you what Christ has done for us in a new exodus and how he has brought us into a new land. How we have been set free, our chains have been broken in Christ. I'm so thankful you asked for that. What's amazing here is the psalmist is saying and interpreting their own circumstances by what their fathers had told them about God. Look at verse 4. They acknowledge, this is what we learned in the past, and this interprets right now. Verse 4, you are my king, O God, ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. In other words, they're saying, why are we experiencing this current victory? Well, because God has done this in the past. God is doing that very thing now. In verse 4, it's specifically recognition of God's sovereignty over the nations. They say, you are my king. That is, the children recognize God's sovereign rule. And the result is a confession of who God is. The Lord your God is one. The Lord your God is powerful. The Lord your God takes and wipes out nations before you. He's sovereign. He is king. They confess. He is our king. Because the fathers have told them. They say it. We heard it from our fathers. This is how we came to this conclusion. You notice there's a recognition of why their enemies fall in verse 5. Through you, we push down our foes. Through your name, we tread down those who rise up against us. For I do not trust in my bow, nor can my sword save me. They recognize why their enemies fall before them. So they know God's might. They know God's power. They recognize we cannot do this on our own. It is entirely by God's grace and mercy according to His steadfast love that their enemies fall before them. So I want you to notice a couple of things that they've learned from their fathers. There's a rejection of works and merit and self-reliance. They recognize that there is no working and no merit in which they are able to defeat their enemies. It is entirely by God's grace. You see, a confession of dependency upon God. For I, not in my bow do I trust. I don't trust in my own means of deliverance 
Why do they know that? Why do they know of a rejection of works and a rejection of uh, self-reliance? And why do they confess this dependency upon God? Go back to verse 1. We have heard with our ears our fathers have told us. Notice also, victory is accredited to God alone. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. This is not a statement of their victory. This is a statement of God's soul victory. They boast not in themselves, but in God who grants mercy. Let me just say, friends, this must also be our disposition. Our salvation is to God's glory, and the same with everything that we have. James chapter 1 and verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Why do you have what you have? Because of God's grace. Purely God's grace. Notice in verse 7 how the salvation leads to praise. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually and we will give thanks to your name forever. Salvation and recognition of who God is and what God has done in their life, it leads them to praise, it leads them to worship. Why? Because they were told this is the proper response. And it's interesting, you see throughout Psalm 44, there's no mention of Yahweh in this, God's holy covenant name. Rather, it is praise of your name, which is the totality of all that God has revealed of himself. You see that in verse um, 5 of his name, through your name we tread down. You see that repeatedly throughout this. We will give thanks to your name. That is all that God has revealed of himself. They give thanks to God who has revealed himself to his people. It's all inclusive of God's self-revelation of himself. And they praise this because of what God has done for them. We ought to note the people of God here as being covenantally faithful according to God's revealed will. They're saying, we have been faithful. God, you have given us victory. We have been obedient to what your will is, which makes verse 9 on so confusing. We've been obedient. Verse 9 but you have rejected us. And all the way through, you have given us over. They were defeated despite faithfulness. So what's going on here? Well, I think that we need to see a pattern of biblical theology, and that is this, is God's righteous rejected by people. 
One commentator, James Hamilton, says this pattern of the believing remnant's experience matches the pattern experienced by the righteous sufferer in the Psalms. The man who, in spite of his piety, is opposed by the wicked. The experience of the righteous man has not become the experience of the righteous remnant, partaking of the dynamic between the one and the many seen so often in the Old Testament, setting up the relationship between Christ, the covenant head, and his covenant people. The Gospel Transformation Bible says it this way, This psalm's movement actually reflects the unfolding drama of redemptive history with the people of God experiencing what Christ actually experienced in their behalf to save his covenant people. With whom the Lord will never truly break faith despite their sin, Israel thus undergoes what Jesus himself does, reinforcing a pattern of mighty deeds followed by the abandonment that Christ eventually fulfills. In other words, this gives us a pattern that we see eventually in Christ. So when we get to verse 9, we see that they're facing the defeat at the hands of their enemies. Look at verses 9 through 11. You have rejected us and disgraced us. You have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe. Those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. They experience rejection. What they were to experience in the land where God gives them this land, they're expelled from that land, and now they have said and said, we are rejected. You see, they're exiled in verse 12. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. Not only are they exiled, but they say, we're worthless. We didn't even have any value when we were sold off. They go on to say, we're experiencing public scorn. Look at verses 13 and 14. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors and the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughing stock among the peoples. Look at those words. They're taunted. They are held in derision. They experience scorn. They're just nothing but a byword. They're a laughing stock among people. That's the public scorn they're facing. Then you see the personal disgrace all day long. My disgrace is before me and my shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and the reviler and at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. They face it constantly. It's always there in their ears. The voice of the enemy taunts them and is always ringing in his ears. Why does this happen? Why do they experience this despite saying, we have been faithful. We have followed your law. You gave us victory and we we know your promises. Verse 17, there's a plea for innocence. Look at what it says. All this has come upon us though we have not forgotten you. We have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back nor our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. They say, we're innocent. We've been faithful. 
But yet we've been exiled. We've been taunted. All the very things that we were told would not happen to us, this is what's happened to us. He even goes so far in verses 20 to 22 to make an appeal to God's omniscience. If we had forgotten, verse 20, the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For He knows the secrets of the heart, yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So the first eight verses of the psalm declares and stated their covenantal faithfulness. They appeal to God's knowledge of this. God, you know. They plead. They have not turned back. They have been faithful. But yet you'll notice starting in verse 9, all the way through, but you have rejected us. You have made us turn back. You have made us like sheep. You have sold your people. You have made us the taunt. You have made us a byword. They say God did all of these things. God handed them over. They acknowledge it was God's sovereign hand that did this. What's the explanation? Because if you read in Deuteronomy, there are blessings for obedience. There are curses for disobedience. They're saying, we have been obedient. And God, you you can attest to this. So what's happened? I think one of the explanations is this, is that the remnant was faithful. But they were facing troubles because the majority had abandoned the covenant. When you think about this in Israel, there was always a remnant that was faithful. A small group that did not bow the knee to Baal. But the majority was apostate. The majority had abandoned God. And now you have this small group facing the consequences, facing the sins of others that are now persecuted And they're saying, why? We were faithful. I I want you to notice in this the beauty and grace of this very confession that God has turned us over. Because you might be thinking, this isn't fair. But actually, what we see through all of this In their very complaint to God, they're taking a complaint to God. Why is this happening to us? Where's the grace? They're in the complaint, not turning from God, but turning to God. Notice Deuteronomy chapter 28 and verse 64 where we have these curses for disobedience. In verse 64, we find this very interesting verse, and the Lord will scatter you among all the peoples. What happened according to Psalm 44? They have been scattered out from one end of the earth to the other, 
And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. But what have we already learned about this group? Yeah, they're scattered out. They're facing the enemy. They're facing taunting. But what do we see already about them? Their fathers had taught them the ways of the Lord. And notice what they say. We have not forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God. In other words, they were faithful because of God's grace even in the midst of suffering. They tell God, we did not forget your name. We did not spread our hands out to a foreign God, which God says is a curse of his disobedience or for their disobedience that they would be handed over to worship other gods. But guess what this group did not do? They didn't worship other gods. Even though those other gods were around them, even though their neighbors were doing these things, their neighbors abandoned worship, their neighbors abandoned God's word, their neighbors do all of these things and follow after other gods and they're more comfortable doing these things. This group doesn't. This group doesn't. They stay faithful to the Lord. Why do they stay faithful? Because God's grace is upon them. And so they plead for God's justice. They plead that God would be just in all that he does. And that is an acknowledgement of their dependence upon him, that he alone gives grace, that he alone gives victory. He alone is sovereign over these things. And so he brings them to almost nothing for their own good. He brings them to desperation for their own benefit. It's interesting when you read the song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32, verse 36. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. You say, yes, I love that phrase. When? When does this happen? When he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining bond or free. This group here is utterly desperate. They've been destroyed. They've been taunted. They've been mocked. But yet through it all, their very complaint is a demonstration of their faith. The very demonstration that God has not abandoned them, but God has kept them through this difficulty. You know, we oftentimes speak of eternal salvation. It's really perseverance is how we should look at our salvation. It's a perseverance by God's grace. That those that the Lord calls will bring them through it all, regardless of what they face. And that God will keep them through this difficulty. And he does keep them through this difficulty because they don't turn their backs, which is a sign that God has truly called them. In verse 23, they continue in their trust over God. Notice what they say. Awake, 
Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and our oppression? They say, awake, Lord. Do not hide your face. And this is a statement of being in God's presence. In God's presence, we see have already seen that when they are in God's presence and that God is with them, they face victory. And in his absence, they had defeat. But yet the defeat, they say, you have done this, meaning they acknowledge that God has never left them. They say they're defeated in verse 25, for our soul is bowed down to the dust. And that uh, phrase of dust and, and, and licking the dust, as you see, of the serpent will be in the dust. And it's, it's a sign of utter defeat. Our belly clings to the ground. We have been completely wiped out. But look at verse 26. An appeal to God's steadfast love. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. They've been conquered by foreign people. They're in exile. or They're stating that they are outside of Jerusalem. They're facing their enemies. And you'll notice what it is that they appeal to. It's not the gods of the people around them, but it is to God himself. And not because they deserve it, but according to his steadfast love. When struggling, the psalmist does not turn to the gods of the nations. When going through turmoil and feeling utterly rejected and abandoned by God because of the circumstances that one finds himself in, they don't turn to worldly devices, but they they rather turn to God. And why is that? Well, because God had called them. God had called them and God's grace was in their life. You think of what we read in Romans chapter 8, verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Father, Abba. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified. In their turmoil, in their affliction, it is not to the gods of the nations they turn to, but they cry out, Abba, Father. What a beautiful picture, because... We as children, we see strength in our Father. We find comfort and protection in our fathers. Even in their imperfection of being fathers, we we still nonetheless find comfort in them. But yet we have a heavenly Father that is perfect, that is immutable, that is sovereign, that is all-powerful. His his power cannot be measured. It's, It's unlimited And He makes Himself known to us. He reveals Himself to us by His Son that when we are struggling, that when we face affliction, that He's there, that we can cry out to and say, Father, we are facing turmoil. Why are we facing these things? Why are we facing this? I've been obedient. I've been faithful. 
What a tremendous reminder of us not to turn to the things of the world for comfort, but rather to look to our Heavenly Father. So we see a pattern. A pattern of suffering here despite righteousness. Much like how the Lord Jesus suffered despite obedience. The faithful remnant suffered despite obedience. Yet the Lord throughout it all never left them. I want you to turn to Romans 8 and look at verse 31. And Paul quotes this very psalm to make a point for us. What what shall we say to these things? Verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who? shall separate us from the love of Christ. Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. In other words, these are the things you will face in this life. You will face tribulation. You will face distress. You will face persecution. You will face famine. You will face nakedness and danger and sword. But those things are not an indication that God's love has abandoned you. In other words, when we face the taunting of our neighbor, it's not a sign that God has left his own. Verse 36, he quotes Psalm 44. For your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. In other words, you face these things in this world, it's not an indication that you have been separated, that you have been cut off, that God has abandoned you, that God has rejected you. No, none of those things can separate you from God. Verse 37, No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. What did we learn this morning? is that Christ who sat at the right hand has conquered all things. Notice even in verse 34 it says, Christ who is seated at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Verse 38, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Suffering, tribulation, trials, circumstances do not set us, separate us from God. Actually, in the midst of that suffering, when we cry out to God, shows that His grace is operational in our lives. When you cry out to God, when things are bleak, 
That's not a sign that God has abandoned you. That is showing you that God's grace is operational and working in you to refine you, to build you up, to edify you. It is for your good and His glory. It means this, the things that we face in this life are not for nothing, as if it's some sort of cosmic accident that we face things, but God, is, who is sovereign, is working according to His plan for the good of His people. What we face here is not the sign that we have been separated from God, that we call out to Him in the midst of it is a sign that He has got us and He has not let us go. And praise God for His grace that He keeps us because we face things where we want to walk away, but He doesn't let you. He won't let you because He's got you and He'll never let you go. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of salvation that we have in Him. We thank You that we have such a merciful Savior that watches over and protects and guards His people. Father, we know that we face trials and tribulation in this world, but Your grace, Father, is far superior to those things. I pray that You would always... Father, comfort us by your presence and that your gospel would be a continual reminder in our hearts that you do not depart, you do not separate yourself from your people whom you have called because you have given them to your Son and your Son died for them and your Spirit applies that salvation to us. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and that in him we have salvation In Him we have deliverance. We pray these things in His name. Amen.